0: Hello, and welcome to Decoder.
1: I'm Neil Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today, I'm talking to Ryan Peterson, who is currently the CEO of a company called Flexport. He'll soon step up to be the Executive Chair, and we'll get to that in a minute. But Flexport builds software that integrates all the different shipping vendor systems you might run into. As you try to get a product from a factory in China, to a consumer in Idaho. Rail, c truck, Flexport brings it all together. And Flexport's doing pretty well at the moment. It just raised $935 million in a Series E investment round led by Andreessen Horowitz and Michael Dell's MSD Partners. The company is now valued at $8 billion. So it's a good time to talk to Ryan since his company's doing well and he's about to make a big management change, but also because it feels like we've been in the middle of a supply chain crisis since the pandemic began in 2020. Even now, two years on, the supply chain is being constantly disrupted by things like the war in Ukraine, labor issues around the world and in our country, most recently with the railroads, and of course COVID, which hasn't actually gone away. Now, we've talked about the supply chain and inventory management on Decoder with a lot of our guests. The chip shortage seems to affect every company, and sorting out how to get a product made and delivered on time is a pretty universal problem. But we haven't really talked about how products actually get from place to place around the world. And that's really been one of the key issues in the supply chain crisis all along. I ordered some golf clubs last year, and they just sat on a shipping container on a boat for a couple weeks, waiting to be unloaded. That's one of the problems Ryan himself has solved. In the middle of the pandemic, he rented a boat to tour the port of Long Beach, and he pointed out in a viral tweet storm that simply stacking empty shipping containers a little bit higher would allow trucks to unload faster and ease the delays that ocean freighters were facing in the port. The zoning law that set the maximum height for shipping containers? Yeah, it got changed really fast and things improved. So I wanted to talk to Ryan. I wanted to figure out what Flexport's role in all this is, what his bigger supply chain solutions would be, and why he's leaving his job as CEO to be executive chairman and handing the reins of the company to Dave Clark, who used to work at Amazon. So we talked about all his changes, Ryan's bigger ambitions, and Really, what's going on with the supply chain? And I have to say, Ryan keeps it pretty real. He might be one of the most candid CEOs I've ever talked to. Okay, Ryan Peterson, CEO of Flexport. Here we go. Ryan Peterson, you are the founder, the current CEO, and soon to be the executive chairman of Flexport. Welcome to Decoder. Thanks for having me on. There's a lot to talk about. There's a supply chain crisis, an infrastructure bill, you have a new org chart, but let's start at the beginning. What does Flexport do?
2: Well, Flexport's a technology platform for global logistics. We make it easier to ship anything, anywhere, all over the world. That's the vision. We actually don't ship anything, anywhere, and we don't go to (laughs) every country. But uh, mostly what we ship, we ship uh, containerized freight, so ocean freight, air freight, pretty much anything that's too big to fit in a FedEx truck or a UPS truck starts to be kind of like moving large quantities of can be consumer goods. We ship a lot of electronics, a lot of apparel. Now, but we're, we're getting really diverse. We ship all kinds of stuff. And and the core problem is that you know global trade is like one of the most important things in the world, the circulatory system for the world economy. It's a 47% of GDP is like trade, international trade. And yet it's still a nightmare to do. So we build technology to make this easier for companies, manage that process, give them visibility. Where's my stuff? When is it going to arrive? How much is it going to cost? How do we lower the costs of those transactions and make, uh, make make the world a better place? All right. You started out by saying, we don't ship
1: anything. And then you said you shipped a bunch of things.
2: We don't ship everything.
1: Okay. That makes sense. Uh, But Flexport primarily makes software, right? You're not in the business of actually moving containers from place to place.
2: It depends how you define things. So we do, we make software, uh, but what our software does is connect companies that need to ship stuff with companies that have assets to move the things. And so you actually contract to ship things through Flexport. We've got rates for our ocean freight to ship anything between 112 countries, air freight the same. We can ship all over the world and make that easy for you. It's a hard problem from a software perspective because we got to go to the supply side and solve their needs as well. Supply side means trucking companies, ocean carriers, airlines, warehouses, customs brokers. And we connect this whole network of those companies with over 10,000 importers and exporters that have cargo to move.
1: So I'm a guy with a ship. I'm assuming you don't have a lot of like single guys with ships, but let's just assume I'm a guy with a ship. I can sign up for Flexport and say, look, I got room in my ship. I'm going to China, fill up my ship.
2: You're right, there's not guys with ships. uh. (laughs) Look,
1: I have a dream, and it's like, I just want to own one of those giant container ships and
2: just spend my days on the sea. The first ever article ever written about Flexport was a Bloomberg article that called us Uber for ocean freight, and it's kind of the model that you just said, and I think it confused people for many, many years about what we (laughs) do, so I want to be careful. Today, there's only like 11 or so ocean carriers. These are the people that own container ships that represent like 95% of global trade on containerized freight, so we have contracts with all of them. We have partnerships with all of them. We have integrations to get rates and service schedules and be able to book freight with them. So, But the problem fundamentally is, let's say you have a container you want to ship. Well, the ocean carrier goes from port to port, but your container is going from a factory to a door. So someone's got to coordinate the trucking and the customs clearance as well. That's where Flexport comes in. We also have partnerships with hundreds of trucking companies that run our software to uh, assign loads to their drivers, dispatch it, to deliver it. We clear customs in over a hundred countries to get the goods in and out of these countries. So it's it's stitching it all together. That's the art of freight forwarding. I often joke it should be called freight email forwarding because <laughs> usually, you know, people aren't building software for the supply side and connecting them in. They're forwarding emails around and PDFs and Excel attachments and things. That's where we're trying to modernize things is the way that the data can flow between these companies. You know, your fundamental problem is that all these companies run different IT systems. Yeah. So how do I actually connect them together? It's a, it's a really challenging problem. Yeah, this is
1: kind of the first question I want to ask. This seems like the sort of idea where if you have some experience in this field, okay, I'm going to start my direct-to-consumer business. I'm going to get a factory in China to make hair dryers. They're going to send it to me. Suddenly, I've got to deal with how they're going to get to me and then how they're going to get to customers. So that's very challenging. And if you have an abstracted view of that, you might say, well, we should just build some software to standardize a bunch of these procedures, automate it, let me with a click of a mouse, make the thing happen. But you actually have 11 different companies that are huge that probably don't want there to be a lower friction from switching between them. And you've got whatever number of trucking companies in however many countries, however many customs protocols and offices in however many countries. How on earth did you get them all to play ball with you?
2: Well, we haven't got everybody. And uh, honestly, I, I think that if I'd known everything I know now, I wouldn't have done it it would have been sounded like impossible. You could never pull this off. And there's a helpful naive optimism for a new founder charging into an industry that they don't know that much about to go <laughs> like, I'm gonna solve all these problems. And like, actually you can do more than you think you can. So it almost had to be an outsider to the industry to tackle it. Cause an insider would have understood everything and been like, it's not possible. Um, so what,
1: what was the first win? Like, when did you know it was gonna work basically?
2: Well, so even before I launched, so like I came at this from the customer perspective, almost exactly the scenario you're saying. I've got these hair dryers. In my case, it was motorcycles. It's imported buying motorcycles in Taiwan and in mainland China, a little bit in Brazil. We were buying these motorcycles and selling them, and we just kind of hated our freight forwarder. It's my older brother's company. I was working for him. I hated our freight forwarder. You know, George Bernard Shaw says every profession is a conspiracy against the laity. (laughs) And it's like freight forwarding is the poster child for that. They got all these code words and Viking English. Uh, He's like, what are you talking about? Tell me how much it's going to cost. When is it going to arrive? What documents do I need? What do these documents mean? I said, hey, we should just build software to do this. Like we can tell the person what the documents are. We can kind of have a wizard uh, turbo tax for importing, I might call it. Only after I got started, I realized like, oh man, now I have to go contract freight from these ocean carriers and find truckers to deliver it and stuff. So I didn't understand all the problem that was actually there. But before I ever launched, I had this website. It was out there kind of offering it to see if people would want that service if it existed. And one day, uh, Saudi Aramco signed up for my website. <laughs> it's like the Saudi national oil company, one of the biggest companies on earth. I was like, wait a minute. I thought I was like attracting Amazon merchants, like, you know, with your hair dryers trying to import. And next thing I know, I'm the biggest company in the world signing up. So I'm like, okay, if we could do the service, we'll make a lot of money. Like, well, everybody's going to, even the biggest company on earth wants to use us. We don't ship oil to even to this day. So Saudi Aramco is not a customer, but (laughs) the possibility is all there. You know, so you're like, okay, now we just have to learn how to do the business. And it's been the better part of a decade. That was in 2009. Uh, Now it's, you know, 13, 14 years. Just constant iteration improvement to be able to do the job. And I still don't think we've solved it all at all.
1: But, you know, starting a software company, setting up a landing page, select email addresses and seeing, I'm guessing it's like at, Saudi or AMCO.com or whatever, right? Like, that's one thing. That's like you validate the idea. Even building the software is like a lower lift than making this company. Did you have to go like knock on doors and say to some of the freight companies, hey, I need you to let me use your backend IT systems. I need an API in. Or were you saying, you know what? We'll just figure out how to read the PDFs and take it from there.
2: A lot of chicken and egg problems had to be solved. Like They don't want your business until you're big. And they're not going to give you any rates until you're big, like good freight rates. But then, of course, I can't get big if I don't have good freight rates and a provider. So it's just like chicken and egg problems in every direction. The way we solved it was getting customers who really wanted software to manage their supply chain and building that software. It's like, look, this really is beautiful. We have all the data that you're going to want here. You have to ship with us for it to work. And they would be like, yeah, if you can get this price, then we'll ship with you. These are actual conversations we'd have to have. And then we take that to the supply side and go, hey, uh, ocean carrier or other freight forwarder, if you can get this price. I'll bring you like the world's largest, uh, I don't know, whatever company, like somebody that's interested. I don't want to reveal customer names. I don't have permission to, but a big company would come on board. say, yeah, they'll, they want this software. They will ship with us. So we just have to get this price. And the price wasn't crazy. It was half what we were paying at the time. So it was like, can't, (laughs) but it was like a market price. They're not asking for anything too crazy. And then we would get, it was like, yeah, sure. I'll do it. Let's do it. And we'd get people. uh, And then we have to Yeah, a lot of manual stuff, humans doing things. There are still humans doing a lot of stuff at Flexport, uh, but we just chip away and automate away those interactions, integrate systems, find ways to streamline things, and yeah, hard problems to solve in every direction. I think about the audience for Decoder is every
1: business school student in America, right? And so this is like the real meat of the problem. What did your pitch look like to both of those entities, right? You would go to someone who wanted to ship something and say, look how beautiful the software is, don't you wanna use it? And then they'd say, get me the rate and we'll use it. And then you'd go back to the other side and say, give me this rate and I'll bring you this customer. Can't they just get the customer anyway?
2: At its simplest, that is the operation is going back and forth. We had a benefit here of like most, if you're, you're basically trying to get a market to form, right? And market making is hard, but like most times you need liquidity in the market in real time. Like you need to match supply and demand. Right now on that eBay sale, you can't wait three months to find the seller or find the buyer. In this case, it's asynchronous, so I could get the buyer, say, hey, look at this software. Let's co-develop this software. Let's sit at a whiteboard and be like, yeah, you want a dashboard that does this. It lights up when this shipment is this late, et cetera. Okay, cool. Let's design that. Now the software is there. It's if-then statements. If this software works and if you hit this, <laughs> hit this price, then I will buy. Okay, cool. I got to go find a provider that would do that. And no, they couldn't get the freight because the buyer sees them as a commodity on some level but doesn't see the software as a commodity, and wants the software, and is willing to have other, you know, different providers if if the software and the data is there. One learning, though, is that you do have to take the supply side. They don't want to be a commodity. They don't want to be in a race to the bottom, like Kayak, for who's the cheapest freight provider. So you have to really spend time with the supply side understanding their needs. In that case, it's like, hey, they want to be able to differentiate. They want to be able to charge more for better services. Okay, cool. Let's create that product. So we've created a lot of products for supply side where they have premium, hey, last uh, container loaded on a ship or the first off and get paid a lot more for that. Prioritizing containers, fast lane type of things. It helped them make more money, right? And so I think it's one of the core lessons of building a platform is like you got to look in every direction and make sure everybody's winning. It's really, really hard to do but that's the definition of winning, right? Definition of success is like, (laughs) everybody wins, nobody has to lose. It's kind of a good framework for evaluating if a company is gonna succeed at the end of the day. It's like, is one of the stakeholders really losing? Is everybody benefiting from this? You can apply that to a lot of companies and figure out, does this have staying power or do they need to really invest in their compliance, their government relations, their neighborhood, you know, like Airbnb, like everybody wins in Airbnb except for the neighbors. Right. So it's like, okay, what are we doing about that? And then they spend a lot of time, hey, no parties allowed, no, you know, these things. So like try to solve that kind of flaw in the model. Just stepping
1: back again, this is extremely reductive. When you say that ocean carriers want to differentiate, it sounds like you're just describing like classes of airline service and you want to expose them in your software. So I can pick ocean liner comfort plus and get that for slightly more money. And they want to compete on that level instead of the, just get this from here to there.
2: Transit time, reliability, you know, yeah, it's really transit time and price. And then each one of those has a standard deviation, which is your reliability, your ability to hit that price without, you know, surprising them later that there's a different price or ability to hit that transit time. You might have a really fast transit time, but half the time it's super slow. That's not very reliable. So they want to be able to differentiate on that. They don't want to be in a race to the bottom on price, which is what's happened to the airline industry. Basically, you have kayak and you, people tend to just choose the cheapest fright, flight. So.
1: Well, no, but it's a big split, right? There's a race to the bottom for like half the plane and then skyrocketing costs at the top of the plane. And the airlines will happily tell you this is what everybody wants because half the people get cheap flights and the other half will pay any number of dollars for a larger seat display.
2: You know, we actually do a lot of air freight. It's interesting to talk to these companies and see that actually they're really, really sophisticated on yield management for the passenger, all the stuff that you're describing. And in the belly... They are twenty years behind. They're getting there, and actually, a lot of the same people have moved over from passenger side of the business over to the cargo and start optimizing and putting in yield management philosophies and processes and stuff. Um, but it's not there. Um, and the same is true for software. The airline industry was one of the first in the world to adopt computers way back in the nineteen fifties, way before the internet. They started using computers to do ticketing and stuff. and And by the 80s, still before the browser, but you had these online dial-in systems for travel agents and the databases couldn't keep up. And that's a big deal when you're selling a ticket, if you sell it twice, it was creating huge problems for them. And so the company actually, ITA is uh, now part of, now it's Google Flights, but ITA came out and built this, just using a relational database, built a real-time database for them to be able to present ticketing options to people. So that was like a huge win way back in the eighties on the airline ticketing side, but it never happened in the ocean carrier world and never happened in the air cargo world. And it's like, maybe it's starting to happen right now with Flexport's a part of that story, but um, these, these companies are modernizing pretty fast. But in my view, like 20 years after it could have happened with the rise of the internet, so. Is that
1: because if you blow it with an airline customer, you have an angry airline customer, and if you blow it with a shipping container, you just have a shipping container?
2: Well, certainly the cargo is less uh, angry when you leave it at the, on the side of the <laughs> in the side of the runway right. for, for two days. Like it doesn't speak up. Which makes it harder too. And you know, I'm like the passengers, they like walk themselves through the terminal and get their own passport and visa and stuff. And like cargo, you gotta do it all. Everything has to be managed door to door. But the cargo doesn't get as upset when it's uh, delayed or you have a lot more optionality for how you route things. The customer cares a lot more about stops, for example.
1: So that's actually one of the the things I really want to kind of push on here. A lot of the process is still manual, right? Someone's got to pilot a ship across the ocean, right? Someone's got to drive the truck to the port, load the container, unload the container, get the hairdryers out. How do you actually make sure any of this stuff is where your software thinks it is?
2: Well, the physical process is manual. And then the, what you're trying to do is get it so that the data moves seamlessly without humans having to do things. And even that there are parts that are manual where people are, how do I get data to and from each actor out there in the field that needs to do something and eliminate layers between that operator who really knows what's happening to the freight and their dispatcher or their manager. And then ultimately our company and our customer. Right. And there's like all these layers to communication. Um, and so we do this with software. So probably the simplest example to explain is our our trucking software. We have a dispatcher app. It's a web application that's run by over 140 trucking companies in the United States. Each of them has between 10 and 200 trucks. I think the average is around hundred trucks and these are doing port pickups and airport pickups for us. So it's a dispatcher app and then their drivers get a mobile app. If they want, they can also get a hardware device that plugs into the truck. But the mobile app's actually pretty good for get, you can get GPS off of that. And so then the driver, the is told where to go pick up the load, what load is it, and they can log data so they can take a picture of the container, they can enter the container number, You know, they can get the customer to sign the delivery receipt. And then that data can flow not just to their dispatcher, which is novel for them, they haven't had these this good of tools, but then flow to our team and not just to our team, but all the way to our customer, hey, when is that truck, where is it, when is it gonna arrive? So you're trying to, you know, on some level eliminate the need for this freight email forwarding, which was required before, That's a great example because it used to take us, before we built that software, the way we did in the beginning was we'd call these truckers and email them and dispatch them. Hey, I got this load, come pick it up. It was bad for getting real-time data, where's the stuff? And it was labor intensive. It was costing us like 42 minutes per shipment of humans having to interact with those truckers. So huge win, it's a better customer experience and saves a lot of money. This is a transition that Flexport made. You had like people calling the truckers. Yeah. In the beginning, we didn't have that software. We had to build it. And so it's kind of, you know, it's like you're building the rocket ship while it's in flight. But first get the customer. And then we're a customer centric company. Not all the solutions are tech. So if we got to do stuff with people, okay, we do it with people, but then we'll come back really intelligently, hopefully, and build tech to replace stupid things that we're doing, like having to email truckers. Like there should be, we shouldn't have to do that. What? But the tech solution was a big bet for us. We're like, oh, we're going to build software. They're going to run it to manage their fleet, and they're going to use it even if it's not a Flexport load. These trucking companies use our software to assign all their loads to their truckers. That was a big bet that we made, and that paid off. How many people
1: does Flexport have? Are you are you like scaling up when you have people that you need to make phone calls, and scaling down again? How does that work?
2: Uh, we tend to grow out of it. Hopefully, we don't have to scale down. and don't grow through it. Pretty tough on culture if you ever if if you're laying people off. But we've got three thousand people. And then yes, we try to automate the work so that we can grow. As we grow, we don't need to hire as many people and we're making good progress on that. We think we can probably automate about 80% of all the work that happens coordinating a transaction in the next few years. And then, you know, it's probably like every five years you automate 80%, but you're never really able to (laughs) automate everything. That's my suspicion is how it plays out.
1: And then what's the pricing model here? Are the the truck companies getting the software for free and you just hope that you can get flex port loads in there? How, How are you making
2: money? So we make money by uh, charging customers to ship freight and then provide all the services that you need around that. So not just a freight delivery, but customs clearance. We sell insurance uh, and then we have a financing business. We lend people money to buy products, lend companies money to buy products. So those are kind of the core business lines. Um, Lots of additional services we can layer onto that. The trucking software, we charge for it, but not very much. It's not an important revenue stream for us. It's more just so that they know that we're serious about supporting it.
1: Once you have a software customer, I hear this from every CEO comes into Coder. Once you have a software customer, your investment in software starts to skyrocket because your users expect a lot out of you. Mm. You've given the software to the trucking companies, you're charging, you're saying we're serious. Is that something where you need to have a customer support people for the trucking companies in case the software goes sideways?
2: We do, and it's an area for us to make some big strategic decisions. Like I would really like to see us invest and go big there and start adding more and more services for these truckers. And maybe, I mean, what do we need to help them run a good business? And we should just really be thinking of that, that group that builds that software should just only think about the truckers and make amazing stuff. Maybe it's cheaper trucking insurance or financing. To, you know, I don't know, there's a million things you could think of that that trucking company might need that lock in that supply and make them more loyal to Forward and available to move our loads when we have loads to move. Today, we kind of like build software that helps our core customer move freight. And I'd like to see us really make strategic bets there. But um, it's the problem with these companies. You just don't have enough people. Even We're not cash constrained, but just having the talent to go and do all that stuff. It's a lot of people.
1: All right, you open the door to talk about your finances. You said you're not cash constrained. It says in my sheet here, you just started to be profitable in 2021. What does the revenue look like? What does the profit look like?
2: Uh, last year, we did $3.3 billion in revenue. We have a take rate on that. I think last year's take rate was 18%. Uh, so, that's what the net revenue was. It flowed down to bottom line. We made a little over $30 million in profit last year, if I have the number. And we've got $1.2 billion of cash in the bank and liquid assets, so we're good on cash. We're trying to maintain and not not go back. I, we burned a lot of money to get here. For context, we raised a total of $2.35 billion. So if you have $1.2, that means we spent $1.1. Billion dollars. So there's a lot of anxiety that comes with that. It's not fun to set that much money on fire. So I don't want to I don't want to go back to burning money. I'm really proud that we're profitable. We might burn a little bit of money this year as we invest. But like I never want to go back to the world that we were in. We're just like really burning a lot of money a few years ago. All right. So here's
1: the big decoder question uh you've been at this for you know 12 13 years you've been the ceo you're the founder you've just turned the corner to being profitable depending on how this year goes you'll be profitable again but actually you just decided to stop being the ceo you hired dave clark who's from amazon to be the ceo and you're going to move yourself up to executive chairman how do you make decisions
2: well this is a different kind of decision so i'm not sure i have a generic framework i wasn't planning to make this decision in fact i love being the ceo of flexport i think I'm pretty good at it. I've done a you know I've gotten us this far, but there are some things I'm not that good at that I think directly align to what we need to do over the next decade to become like one of the most important companies in the world, and they're just not my strong suit so i'm I'm like a creative, intuitive type. I'm very good at coming up with good ideas. You show me a problem, I'll probably come up with a creative idea. I don't know if you should do it or not. It might be too crazy, but (laughs) but I come up with good ideas, a creative idea, ideas that other people hadn't thought of. That's something I, I don't know. I have a unique ability for that. What Flexport needs right now, though, is rigorous day to day. Get a little bit better at the stuff we did yesterday. We're gonna launch new stuff. We gotta get improve our velocity, but like a lot of it is operational excellence. Like what is the transit time? from China to the US and what's the standard deviation of that? And what are we doing to cut that every single time, make it run a little bit better? It's not my forte, I'm learning it really fast. I am finding it intellectually interesting, but I'm having to learn on the job and it's like, Dave's got this, like, that's the back of his hand. He's, uh, and can free us up to be more innovative and focused because if we're not good in the core operations, and I think we have some real opportunities of improvement there, you're just never going to be the world's most important logistics company and logistics platforms. So it was just like opportunistic. I was starting to look for a COO who could be my right hand to do that stuff. And then I like kind of caught a whale and found out Clark would be interested. And next thing you know, I looked at the org. and was like, what should I own versus Dave? And uh, I couldn't really find anything. I thought I'd be a lot better at than him. So I decided to step up to exec chairman and be his business partner rather than his boss.
1: I'll come back to the org chart. You know, I love an org chart question. Don't worry about it. But start with the more general question. How do you make decisions then?
2: I personally don't love making decisions. I think it's another area that Dave actually loves to make a decision. <laughs> he hates to make a decision you know, tomorrow that he could make today. And most decisions he's correct are like reversible. And so you don't have to think, overthink things. Um, I'm like more consultative, want to hear other people's decisions, want to delegate, let other people make the decision. It has served us quite well. We built a culture where like, Hey, it's not all dependent on me. I don't make all the decisions, but it also slows us down. Cause like a lot of times it's someone at the top just needs to make decisions so we can move faster. So I don't think I'm like the best decision maker on earth. I like other people to make decisions and I'll, uh, and uh, if you're smart, I'll trust you on the stuff. So, All
1: right. So how are you structured now? before Dave comes in? How are you, how is Flexport structured now with you as a CEO?
2: I'm the CEO. I've got seven direct reports. We've got sales. We've got procurement, kind of goes out, procures ocean freight, uh, air freight, trucking, et cetera. We've got operations uh, that executes the transactions. We've got account management and then a network optimization team. And That's kind of the core. And then there's a tech org that supports all of that. What Each of those has, teams has their goals and there's a tech org that supports it. Uh, and then you kind of have governance layers, finance people, legal and compliance.
1: Correct me if I'm wrong. So your tech org doesn't, report to you no
2: it does cto reports to me
1: okay so that's under the cto and and then he but
2: he has teams that are kind of serving each of those functions uh as they're paired up to make sure that we deliver like tools for the customer tools for the supply side a lot of supply side some of it's like what i mentioned with the trucking uh, software we have warehouse software a lot of it's integrations into other it systems so there's a whole team that does integrations an ecosystem team that connects our apis with other with the rest of the world And then operations build software for the operators. And then just in terms of where your headcount is, you have 3,000 people.
1: I'm always curious. Is that mostly software people? It seems like every software company is just an escalating amount of software people.
2: Uh, I wish we had more. um, We've got a little bit less than 600 people making software out of the 3,000. Call it 20% or so. Um, Then a lot of sales and account management and then a huge amount of operations, like people who are coordinating these shipments, clearing customs, doing data entry. You know, We still have to ingest a lot of docs. We've built a lot of great optical character recognition tech that does machine learning and ingests documents, but there's humans that have to review these things. Compliance is super important to make sure that you're filing the correct documents that customs need. So there's large teams that do that work too. And then you'd be surprised how many people end up working in finance, HR, et cetera, when your company gets big. And so
1: do you sell like a a clearance time? Are you like, look, we guarantee that our team will knock out this customs compliance in 48 hours?
2: Yeah, we have SLAs for all these things. This is where, you know, I don't think we're good enough right now to do that. But that is 100% what all the teams are building towards and measuring it and saying, hey, what's our P90 transit to P95 transit time?
1: What's a P95 transit time?
2: Sorry, P95 is like uh, 5% of shipments will be worse than this. Okay. You know, 95% of shipments achieve this metric of transit time on this lane. And what we want to get to is where we sell uh, deferred freight that's cheap but unreliable. Might go really fast, might go really slow, but it's cheaper standard and then kind of premium or even express freight where you're paying a lot more for transit time. Last couple of years have been really hard, man. Like very, very hard to guarantee anything when there's a, you know, a 40 day backlog at the port of Long Beach and stuff. So, but we're putting in the systems and building towards that vision where you're really selling differentiated services. You're allowing people to pay more to move inventory they really care about, pay less for the stuff that doesn't need to get there on time and give that kind of Logistics industry hasn't really had this. You see it in parcel, uh, but you don't see it in freight. Parcel like you FedEx, you pay, you know, one price for overnight, a different price for two day, and a different price for five day. But in the freight world, you haven't had as much distinction. So that's what we're building towards. And
1: yeah, that's because FedEx is just end to end, right? They control their whole network and they can just do whatever they want.
2: That's right. They own it door to door, Um, or maybe there's one handoff to another local company in a different country, but it's basically one IT system, scanners the whole way, You kind of control the network. The planes are running on a schedule. That plane's flying whether or not you move your parcel. In freight, like that truck's not driving if you don't ship the freight, right? It's just different. It's harder to predict things. You don't own the assets. You can't schedule them so you're building lots more heuristic and machine learning models to say hey we think this ship is going to arrive and what we found is that our w- machine learning is really really working on the estimates of when ships will arrive for example and we're better now at knowing when the ship's going to arrive than the company the own schedule they publish we're more accurate by using satellites and machine learning and, so, and, and estimating when the ship will arrive so we're getting we're getting there
1: i want to talk about ships i definitely want to talk about the port of long beach but uh, last question just the org stuff so Dave's gonna come in, he's the new CEO. If he's like, this org chart is dumb, I'm blowing it up. Are you gonna let him as the founder and now the
2: executive chairman? Uh, we're already doing that. I don't wanna reveal everything because I haven't told everybody at the company yet, but uh, there, will be some, there will definitely be some changes. In fact, I'll, I'll preview. Dave will have more of the business lines directly reporting to him and elevate some of the teams to report directly to him. So there'll be more people on the directs to the CEO. I look at it and I think it's much better for the company and much worse for the CEO.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's like a number. It's like 10 directs and like suddenly and you run out of capacity,
2: right? He's comfortable with doing more. So I, I think I'm too lazy. I think <laughs> my laziness has held us back. So it's like things like that. You're like, oh yeah, this would be better for the company. I don't want to do it, but perfect. You're going to be better at this job than I would be. So
1: And then your executive chairman, are you what, are you sipping Mai Tais and taking boat rides around the port of Long Beach? Or are you, what are you doing?
2: TBD, honestly, I'm, I'm comfortable with more uncertainty than almost any human I know. And my, I'm just like 100% committed to making Dave successful, making the company and Dave successful. And so I assume I'm going to find some really awesome ways to add lots of value. And I've got a long list of what those might be. So we're co-CEOs until March 1st. And I'm not thinking at all about March 1st right now. I'm thinking about the next couple of months and what, you know, how do I help Dave be successful? And after that, we'll find a way. But I think I'll be more free to come and hang out with you and do your podcast again, (laughs) uh, go on conferences, um, go meet with the world stakeholders, you know, uh, I can only be so many places and I'm running this business every day and I can't be out there talking to a customer, visiting an airline, an ocean carrier, doing deals with the ports and the governments of the world. So I think hopefully it frees us up and we can kind of like do more of that really valuable work that's hard to do when you got day-to-day responsibilities internally.
1: The model that actually comes to mind as you're talking about it is Eric Schmidt at Google, who was the adult supervision su- CEO. And then Larry Page was like, this is like, it's my company. I'm the CEO now. And he's like, all right, I'll be the chairman. My job is to go gland politicians, and ease the regulatory environment for Google.
2: Well, oh, what Eric did after yeah. Larry came back? Yeah, that could be. That could be. I think it's it's different than when La- Eric first got hired because Larry stayed and ran product and engineering. Nothing's going to report to me. It'll all report, report into Dave. We need
1: to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about Ryan's trip to the port of Long Beach. Stick around.
0: Support for this show comes from Wix Studio. Debate time. Who gets more out of Wix Studio, designers or devs? First off, if you don't know about Wix Studio, it's a web platform offering the flexibility agencies and enterprises need to deliver bespoke sites hyper-efficiently. Now, back to the debate. Designers, you can create fully responsive websites, starting with a blank canvas or choose a template for any layout and tweak per pixel with your CSS. If no-code's your thing, or you just like to move fast, there's also a ton of smart features, like native no-code animations and responsive AI that adjusts every breakpoint. Devs, Wix Studio offers a powerful suite of homegrown web APIs and REST APIs. Quickly integrate, extend, and write custom scripts in a VS code-based IDE alongside an AI code assistant. Designers or developers, search Wix Studio Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
1: We're back with Flexport CEO Ryan Peterson. All right, let's talk about the port of Long Beach. So uh, you would be on the show anyway, because Flexport is a really interesting business. And I think trying to make software that moves atoms around is really challenging. And you've got to see a transition. Lots of reasons for you to be on Decoder anyway. You're on Decoder because you took a boat ride around the port of Long Beach and said, what the fuck is going on here? Like, let's be honest, like blew your profile up. And literally the thing that stuck to me was, you're like, just stack them four high instead of two high and like, we'll ease the supply chain crisis. And then they did it and it worked. Tell me about that, because a software CEO doesn't usually go and like look at the atoms and say, we're organizing the atoms wrong. How did that happen?
2: Well, you know, we're more than a software company. We see ourselves as a logistics platform and we are responsible for moving these containers. Those are our containers that are stuck. I'm like, (laughs) we've had real operational problems and I was trying to unpack and figure out what the what is actually going on down here. You got to go in person, you know? I think it's a really important lesson for every CEO, no matter what business you're in. You got to go firsthand, talk to that customer, talk to that vendor, talk to that frontline team. You will learn so much from getting out there. I think the Japanese call is like Gemba, is like managing by walking around type thing. So nothing too unusual, honestly. Like it's our job to ship containers. I got to go down there and see what's going on. So, But actually the boat tour got a lot of, you know, the tweet went super viral, and I kind of unpacked something really interesting, found this, like, catch-22 where the containers couldn't get unloaded because there's no place to put the containers. And if you don't have a place to put the containers, then uh, just they can't unload, you know? So it's, it's just this ba- backlog that was piling up. But a week before that, I was trying to understand what's going on, and I actually um, rented a taco truck and sent it to the port because I wanted to hear what the union had to say. And I figured, okay, how do we get the union to talk to us? I know, <laughs> send them some tacos. Like they'll definitely, uh, and uh, you know, try to like, how do I learn about what's going on here? It took me so long. I want to give a shout out to JM at Flexport, LA ops manager, because every single person I talked to at Flexport thought I was joking about the taco <laughs> truck and refused to do it. But JM <laughs> actually was like, uh, you know, he's the CEO. He says, I get a taco truck. I'll get a taco truck. And we did it. Um, was that you out
1: there with like voice memos on your iPhone, just like talking to people?
2: Uh, we went down there. We said, and the, uh, we, we got the truck, the union came. They, we started, wait, thought- you keep
1: saying we, was it you or is it, did you send a team?
2: No, I wasn't in LA that day. Our team, okay. like a local, oper- JM and this guy, Nathan Strang, who run, the, they run the operations for the company that, uh, that were down in LA. They brought him in and, um, interviewed all these union workers and asked them what the problem was because I hadn't heard their side of the story, you know, and they were blaming the truckers saying, hey, these truckers are not making their appointments. You need an appointment to pick up a container. Truckers aren't showing up if they don't show up, then the container just jams up to bottleneck here. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. I wonder why these truckers aren't showing up. So then the reason I rented a boat was not so I could see the port from the water. Like it doesn't look that different. (laughs) um, It was to, I took the CEO of a trucking company and I brought him on the boat. And this is a great way if you ever want to interview somebody and really get the truth out of them, you bring them on a boat because right now, I can hang up on you if to I don't like her on a boat, baby. Let's do you, it. You, you ask me a question right now. i just hang up on you. <laughs> but on a boat, like, you're stuck. You're totally stuck. That's uh, amazing. So, <laughs> so I got, you know, I took them out there and I was just like, oh, what? This is how, it's, this is what's happening? And, and sort of unpacking the thing that way. So I still don't know that I have the full picture of everything. There's, it's such a complex moving system. Why it all doesn't work and, uh, you know, which parts break down.
1: So your tweet thread, which we'll link to and people can read, it was very good, It was basically like, look, here's all these container ships that are stacking up outside the port of Long Beach. They can't unload. They can't unload because there aren't enough trucks to move the containers and there aren't enough trucks because the trucks are full of empty containers because we're not sending enough stuff back to China or wherever. Just stack the empty containers higher and create some capacity
2: it's a great, I I didn't do it justice. Pretty much. It's about that simple. Is like, we can all picture a traffic jam. So that freeway, when there's no traffic jam, you got four lane freeway and cars are just flying down the road at 90 miles an hour. You've got a lot of throughput and the cars are really moving through the same number of cars can move through that freeway at very different speeds. There's multiple equilibrium points. One is in a flow state, they're all going 90, and that freeway can handle this much. Or they could all be going 20 miles an hour, and that's a traffic jam. And fundamentally, you had a traffic jam with too many containers, and the containers are getting in each other's way so that they're not able to unload more containers because all the yard space is full. Therefore, the trucks couldn't pick up containers because there's a literal traffic jam of trucks outside, and they're missing their appointments. And at the end of the day, if you don't have place to put these containers, there's no truck that can come and pick it up. And the Long Beach City zoning law only allowed containers to be stacked too high. And on the ship, they can stack 14 high, so there's, it's possible to stack them higher. I tweeted about this and said, hey, all we got to do is stack these things six high, make it four high for safety. I don't know, make it, but you can go four high for sure. I tweeted this at 6 a.m. the day after my boat ride. Uh, by 3 p.m., the Long Beach City Council had changed the zoning <laughs> law. So I'm told this is the fastest change by government as a result of citizen action in the sum total of all of human history, actually, not just in, <laughs> not just in the American Republic, uh, de- de- Republican democracy, but all the way back to the dawn of. No, this uh, is good.
1: We're going to hold you to it. The, the producers are already researching your claim. We're going to do a thunderous debunk <laughs> dunk on TikTok. It's going to be great. But let's talk about that for a minute. So you're a, I, I understand you want to say it's a logistics platform, but at the end of the day, you're a soft, like you make software that connects people why isn't the operator of the Long Beach City port seeing this problem? It doesn't seem like that hard of a problem to see.
2: You're now asking a problem about institutions more broadly. What yeah. is going on? What why? What is happening? How do we get some more skin in the game? How do we get people believing they can do things uh, that are outside their job description? go solve things uh, I don't think this is a long beach port specific thing or even a public sector thing I think that you see the same in big companies what's with the inertia why can't they just step up why is it two guys in a garage that can do so much more than the you know thousand person engineering team what happens um there's something about the nature of large institutions where people are a little bit too divorced from the problem that they're the customer that's experiencing their problem and don't Have enough skin in the game to solve it for them, to let them step out of doing things. And the reality is, the world during the pandemic experienced so much change so fast that institutions are not made to handle that kind of change. So take like a port, the port always you know that moves the same amount of containers every year. It goes up by a couple percent. Global trade has grown three or four percent annually for the last 800 years since the Mongol invasion. And so it's like, you you don't expect overnight, the number of containers went up by 20% in one year. You don't have 20% extra capacity sitting around in case there's that many more containers. So everything breaks down. And then you have an institution that's used to kind of like doing the same thing every day, year after year after year. You know, A company like Amazon is used to 20% growth, 30% growth in a physical world. They have built systems for handling that. Flexport is getting there. A port just doesn't have it, you know, and they don't, I I don't think we should expect them to have it, but it is kind of sad that I'll give you another example. Um, When the pandemic hit and we saw there's not enough masks in our hospitals, I found that to be totally unacceptable. Like at a civilization level, we owe this to our first responders, to our doctors. If if you ask me to go in there with a mask with some weird disease that no one knows anything about that might kill me and I don't have a mask, I just got to serve these patients. Like these are real heroes that were willing to do it but if you don't have masks and the the doctors don't show up for work, like civilization collapses pretty (laughs) soon after that. Um, And that was very unacceptable to me. And I rallied a team at Flexport and we stepped up and you know, a big part of why there weren't enough masks is all the world's airplanes were grounded during the pandemic, they're not really flying to China. And 50% of the world's air freight flies in the belly of passenger planes. So if those passenger planes are grounded, there's no air freight capacity. So actually there were a lot, what we found was there are lots and lots of masks available in China. They've ramped up production, but we don't have air freight to get them in. The rest of the whole world, as far as I can tell, looked at that problem and put their hands up and go, eh, fuck, like, I guess our <laughs> doctors are gonna suffer. Let's watch this on TV and see, you know, see what the people are saying. But if you listen to the problem statement, that 50% of the world's planes flies in the belly of passenger planes and those are grounded right now. Like, well, the solution is so obvious. Look at all the planes that are grounded. And so I called like three... I I managed through investor networks and connections that I've been fortunate enough to build over the years. I called the airline CEOs and was like, hey, can we use your planes? We're going to go get some masks to save America's hospitals. And 100% of them said yes, and most of them gave us – some of them, United Airlines gave us free flights. Atlas Airlines gave us a 747 for free. We got really cheap. Like, we were getting Dreamliners for 200K round trip. Ask your super rich friends if that's a good deal on a private <laughs> private plane round trip to China on a Dreamliner, like. And so we flew eighty three planes. I think it was eighty three planes, completely full. We filled the overhead bins, the seats. We uh, in the end we shipped five hundred million masks to America's hospitals, and you're like, kind of like, wait a minute, what? Why are we the ones doing that? We're not supposed to be in that. Industry, but it's, so I think there's some value in that lesson. By the way, for the whole world is like kind of naive optimism. Let's go, we try it. Like, let's see if we can solve the problem. We probably you can do more than than you think you can. It was very inspiring for everybody at Flexport to see, like, oh, like this is working. We actually made this happen.
1: But it happened because you could make some phone calls, right? I mean, like, there's a point at which the people in charge have to act like the people in charge, and it yeah. seems like one thing you do is you just ask the people in charge to do a slightly better job,
2: right? That's a yeah, stack maybe, of the six high. Maybe I'm in charge now. It's very terrifying for me. I'm like, well, <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in charge. Like, what the heck is going on? But uh, yeah, we need more people to step up and believe that they're capable of being in charge, I guess. So this leads me to one of the
1: recommendations you made. You made a lot of recommendations on how to rethink shipping and maybe solve some of the supply chain crisis. One of your recommendations that I've read is that our government, the United States government, should treat our ports more like a strategic national asset as opposed to what they do right now, which is like every city gets to run their own port. But at the same time, if every city is running their own port, some ports might be better run than others as opposed to the sort of inertia that we have felt. I mean, particularly the pandemic, the inertia of the Trump administration in responding to the pandemic and then the sort of inertia of the Biden administration up until like yesterday. If the recommendation is we should think about it more like an asset and control it more, but the reality is Guys like you are just gonna like make a bunch of phone calls and get it done. What's, how do you split the difference?
2: It's a really tricky problem. I mean, I like that. I don't think the federal government's that competent and should run all the stuff. So it's, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like a libertarian. I'm, I would call myself a libertarian if I had to put myself on a spectrum, but it is impossible to be a libertarian if you're a realist and a pragmatist when it comes to ports. (laughs) <laughs> it's like, I, you can't, anybody with a beachfront property should not go and build themselves a port. Like, I think that's, I think that's an absurd argument that we should let, like, you know, uh, somebody who happens to own a beachfront property open a container port on their beach. Like, that's crazy. So, the, and, and physically and geographically, there's only a handful of sites that can be ports, but it's a tricky problem. And I don't think that the local governments are, even if they're equipped and doing a good job, they don't have the right incentives. Like, take the city of Oakland here in the Bay Area, like Oakland has like a really bad murder rate and terrible public school. I don't want to speak too much about all their problems, but they have problems to solve: healthcare, schools, all these things. And yet, the Port of Oakland reports in and is part of the city's mandate. And if the Port of Oakland is causing problems in the hinterland, it's causing problems for businesses that are based in Iowa. Like, does the Port of Oakland? It's not their problem. You know what I mean? It's a kind of an, you call this an externality in economics. And so, yeah, how do you solve for that externality? How do you build something? Frankly, we haven't invested in our ports. I don't really care who does it or how it's done, but they need to be invested in. Our ports have a productivity rate, a throughput, and a labor rate, like labor per container moved worse than the ports of Africa and ports in Kenya. And meanwhile, Singapore has this like fully robotic port that's coming online, blow your mind what's possible. So I don't know, i just like to see this infrastructure be invested in. I don't really care who does it, but uh, it needs to happen.
1: We need to take one more quick break, but when we come back, I talk to Ryan about the Biden infrastructure package.
0: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news, all right, I'll do it.
1: We're back with Ryan Peterson. Before we wrap up, I want to talk to you about the giant infrastructure bill that recently passed. There's $17 billion in port infrastructure and waterways, $25 billion uh, to airports for repair and maintenance. As with everything by the administration, there's a heavy push towards uh, carbon neutral technologies, climate, electrification. Did you see that package come through and think, okay, this is a first step to solving the problem?
2: I don't think it's going to do anything. Personally, I don't know enough about government, but I looked at the port stuff in there and I couldn't find out where they were going to. It's kind of the way it works is like they send money down to the states and then the states have to like commission studies. And I think by the time it gets to putting a shovel in the ground to build a new port, zero dollars will be spent. That's my working assumption. And I'll tell you, I'll (laughs) tell you very much
1: the libertarian in you, but I'll
2: I'll tell you why. So we've had all these backlogs famously, right? hundreds of ships waiting off the coast, et cetera. In Oakland, as we speak, and for the last four years, there's been an empty port terminal that no one's running that you could just turn on and start unloading ships.
1: Have you been tweeting, man? What are you doing with your time? Uh, yeah. I'm told that you are the fastest and most effective city council zoning operative
2: Look, in the history of human civilization. I called them and offered to run the port. I was like, I'll turn this thing on and they won't, <laughs> they won't let me. Uh, now I wasn't serious. I think it would be bad business and I wasn't sure I really wanted to do it, but I was experimenting and seeing what's possible, pushing the the boundaries of the simulation. They're not interested. Now, look, I don't actually want to run the port. I was mostly just figuring stuff out. So maybe they didn't take me seriously or something, but like, why aren't we turning on this port? What's going on? And you haven't been able to find an answer. it's 17 billion. It's not like we don't have money. Like if you want 17 billion to improve ports, like start with the one that's right there. That's not working. All right. Let's Let's
1: say, look, you're not the CEO anymore. Let's say Biden appoints you Port King of America when you have absolute authority,
2: what are your moves? Fundamentally, the ports have a very difficult relationship with their labor. The union is very highly paid and very brittle. Getting paid a lot doesn't bother me. I think that's fine. Uh, But they're, they're very brittle in terms of who will do what and how their work structure works, for example. The way that it works today is that a, a port terminal operator, this private company who leases the land from the government, uh, leases the port terminal, will say to the union, I need this many workers tomorrow. and like, I need 2,000 workers tomorrow. The union furnishes 2,000 workers. They only do it one day at a time. So they say each day how many workers they need the next day. And then the union provides that many workers. Different people every day. No team structure, no like management process, no ability to go like, do you know how to operate this machine? Have you been trained on it? Like, I'm your manager every day. We're gonna, here's how we did yesterday. They're the metrics. Here's how we're, you know, how we're gonna get a little bit better today. This is what we're gonna work on. Like kind of the fundamentals of running an operation. It's like, how did we do yesterday? What are we gonna do better today? They don't do any of that. And so I think you have to, from a starting point, if I'm the czar, (laughs) which comes from Caesar, I'm in charge. I would do a big buyout and take care of the union. I don't want politics. I like, I, there's good reasons for these, the, the unions have done a lot for the world uh, getting us the weekend and all this stuff. So like, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but we got to go forward. We need, we need technology. The union doesn't want it. We need safety. We need all these uh, efficiency robotics and all this stuff. So let's where the, where the czar, So we have infinite money. We're going to buy them out of their contract, take care of them, maybe not take care of their kids and their grandkids the way the current system works but you're going to you're all getting a retirement package and going home and now we're free to run this thing like a well-oiled machine with fully robotic let's go invest in awesome robots where's the giga crane you know like it we still unload these ships one container at a time there's got to be a better design like can't we get like 100 containers and just wrap <laughs> A carousel, like a ski lift that comes and grabs a container every second. Maybe a Pez dispenser, some design we flip the ship upside down. A Pez dispenser. Flip the ship upside down and dump all the containers out. I don't know. There's, there are, let's go, man. We, we this idea, this invent this current system was invented in the 1960s. Like we got to be- have better ways to unload these ships um, faster. So there's a lot to be done there, but it's a, like government scale project and infrastructure. To, you know, even buying out the union is probably like a $10 billion proposition.
1: Um, I mean, I understand why you'd want to buy out a union, right? You just want to clean the slate, start over, build a new structure, hire people who are bought into that structure
2: and take care of them. You're like, I don't, I want to get out of the fight, you know, like, cause they're not going away. If you just say, Hey, we can't, we can't work like this. So.
1: Well, sure, but I'll just like throw some other examples at you. First of all, I manage the unionized newsroom. Like we, we have open conversations with our union here. All right, all right. But it's tiny. It's a much tinier uh, group of people. There's a lot of relationships there. That's different. Car makers, right? Most of the car makers in America are radically reinventing themselves as EV manufacturers. And I'll just point to Ford. Ford. Every time Ford announces a new electric vehicle they've got the UAW standing next to them being like, we're very excited about this transformation and this new factory with more robots in it. Right. And they've managed to close that gap.
2: Yeah. Why is that? Why, what is it? How do they get them interested in robots? I I, I don't know, but
1: that's like, I I guess that's what I'm asking you. Like is a bottleneck actually a labor force that seems disinterested or protective, or is it that that people are just not inventing enough stuff that captures the imagination that gets people to buy it?
2: That's entirely possible. And by the way, the union agreed to do containerization, which was the probably a much bigger change than what we'd be proposing going forward. Right. It's like there used to be that backbreaking work of unloading these ships by hand. uh, And then we switched to containers and they eventually embraced it. They fought it for a long time and embraced it eventually. Uh, So it's possible. And the change that we'd want to push through, but I just don't know if we have time to debate it all and try to get it solved. And the current status quo seems pretty far removed from that. Look, you said if I was in charge and dictator of the yeah. world, what would I do? Well, you just picked like one, like you picked one thing that seems really interesting, right? I think that a lot of the solutions I would want to do would not be super popular With the union, and rather than getting into an argument about who's right, I think they would agree. Like, hey, they'd be happy to just get paid and go, you know, bought out. So I hope the union. If you're out there in the union, listening to me, I'm not anti-union. Actually, look, my proposal was awesome. I just told you I was going to give you a ton of cash. (laughs) So, just to be clear, (laughs) but but I'm not anti-union. I'm anti-kind of like adversarial relationships between management and union. And breakdowns of like, hey, all like, let's be a team here. How do we get a process that lets us all get better every single day? And that, for whatever reason, and and I'm not blaming the union, it could be the management's fault that they don't have that. But it's clear that they don't like they're like kind of like treating labor as this fungible thing. You say, hey, I need this many workers tomorrow as if all workers are the same. <laughs> and it doesn't matter how they're organized or what team they're on. Like, it's just not a the current system over there is not working. Is That's my out, my outsider's view. Okay, I've never worked in the port. I got no idea what I'm talking about. Yeah, I'm, all, I'm, <laughs> I'm a guy on a podcast getting asked questions I never thought about, so all right. It looks-
1: That's the whole point of Decoder, man. <laughs> <laughs> do the ports know you feel this way?
2: Yeah, and they make fun of me, because I'm like, as they should, I'm some outsider that doesn't know what he's talking about with some ideas about how they should do things, and I'm sure I'm wrong on a whole bunch of stuff, but I've also seen how they do stuff, and I know that I could do better. And like, you know, say what you would. Now, I don't know if I could do better in their circumstance, but if I was thinking from first principles, where we, if we were starting fresh and saying, okay, look, we got this nice piece of land on the, on the water, good harbor. How are we going to move containers through at a higher throughput than what we do today, given all the technology exists in the world? Self-driving trucks, cranes that could be as big or powerful as you want them to be, tighter process, machine learning to read all the container numbers on that. I mean, there's just a lot to be done that I'm pretty sure I could do better. Do you look at other countries like
1: China, you mentioned Singapore, do you look at places like that and say, oh, these ideas are actually in production?
2: Oh, for sure. Already in production. Rotterdam has had fully automated ports for over 30 years now in uh, Rotterdam and Holland. Um, so yeah, it's, t- it's like, I actually think we could outdo all of them and create some amazing ideas that are way ahead of anyone in the world. But um, even just implementing stuff that Singapore, Shanghai, Shenzhen and Rotterdam have done would already put us like... you know, way, way beyond where we are today. Do you, from your positions, uh, like sense any of that
1: desire to change because of the pandemic? No, I don't, I don't think so. So uh, broadly, what do you think untangles this supply chain crisis that we're in?
2: It's kind of untangling itself, not the way that we wanted. Uh, What's happened is so that, you know, remembering why this thing started, there were 20% more container imports. Nobody's fault. Honestly, the ports always run that way. And it's not, it's not meant to have capacity for 20% more. And the reason there were 20% more container imports is that all the consumers in the world were kind of locked down and not going to restaurants and bars and traveling. And so they were buying stuff and you got to get your dopamine out there somewhere, right? So they were just buying more stuff, shipping more goods. Well, that's changing back really, really fast. People are going out, travel is booming right now. Restaurants and bars are booming, hotels are booming. So the volume of goods has come down really, really fast And the bottlenecks are unblocking themselves, not through anybody improving the port operations or uh, any of the other bottlenecks. It's just, there's less stuff shipping. Um, Not what we really wanted, us in the freight industry, we want to see more stuff getting shipped all the time and more volumes. We'd rather that we're like, oh, we were able to dig ourselves out by upgrading our operations. But actually it's just, the economy's
1: (laughs) shifted back to the way it was. All right, man, last question I ask everybody. What's next for Flexport after you move up to be executive chairman?
2: We're going to be much more than a freight forwarding business So a lot. You know, we're, we're getting our house in order to be the best provider of freight services from door to door anywhere in the world. But you're going to see us be much, much more than that. Shopify is our newest investor. We're building a lot of really cool stuff for e-commerce to connect direct all the way to consumers' doors. Through the shopify ecosystem and we'll be partnering with more awesome companies to get in front of customer stores uh you'll see us add more services like we want to have like an app store for global trade all the things that you would want to do if you're trying to do business anywhere in the world like my dream is to be able to go to some of our awesome brands that we have on the that we ship for and look at their current distribution network and say hey you guys are selling in the united states and maybe in you know western europe but like why aren't you selling in india Why haven't you added South Korea? Didn't you know there's this button you can click over here and go live on Flipkart and Rakuten and Coupang and Mercado Libre and and help these companies go global? Like that's, that's my dream sale. Cause then you're, you're helping them grow their revenue and launch new, you know, you can, you make more money if you're helping someone grow than if you just a cost center for them. So we're going to build all kinds of cool stuff like that, uh, in the, in the coming decade with, with Dave at the helm and me as his partner.
1: That's great. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for being on Dakota. This is really fun.
2: Yeah, yeah. And if you're out there in the union again, please. I have no horses in my house. I, lo- I love you. You know, Thank you for unloading our containers. I love y'all. Just trying to get you a big payday. Well, let, we'll, we'll, we'll have you back when you're appointed the, czar
1: of all the, ports in America. The
2: Verge Union. Keep writing nice things about us. We love you guys. <laughs> yeah, I'll
1: well, let you take that up with them. <laughs> the number one thing they negotiated for is editorial independence. So all you right, got your own problems. All right, brother. Thank you. All right. Thanks, y'all. Thanks again to Ryan Peterson for taking the time to talk today. Thank you for listening to Decoder. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com. You can hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really like the show, give us that five-star review. As many of you have noticed, if you tweet about the show, I will almost certainly retweet you. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton Simone and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Callie Wright. The Decoder music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Marino. Our editorial director is Brooke Minters. Our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time.